This is the beginning of part two of the Melvin Powers interview. I'm so pleased to be talking to you again. I've got lots of questions from my site visitors from Hard to Find Seminars. We've got a lot to talk about. Good. Well, I'm going to give you information that you don't find elsewhere. I know you are, and that's why I'm so appreciative of you taking the time. No, I'm happy to do it. I am ready to roll. I'm going to recommend that people listen to all of your material because you really have got a lot of great material that you can't find elsewhere. And in fact, I'm going to go through it myself bit by bit when I have the time because it's inspirational. Yes, thank you very much. I mean, it reminds me of things that I should be doing or doing and drop doing it. So this is from a gentleman named Peter Groff, and he says, Mr. Powers, what do you see as the greatest opportunity in mail order today? greatest opportunity is having the Internet and being able to sell your books around the world. And that's absolutely, positively wonderful. If you explore that, you'll be wealthy. What do you consider your greatest success in your mail order business? Being in the business for such a long time and having a great time every day being in it and having the pleasure and enjoyment of being in the book publishing and selling business and just having a great time with it every single day. He also asked, I understand Gary Halbert worked on at least one project with you years ago. Can you talk about what it was like to work with him and what project it was? Do you remember? It was in selling my book, How to Get Rich in Mail Order, by Melvin Powers, and I worked with him on the ad copy. And Gary Halbert was a genius in writing. He just had the knack for it, and we worked on a couple of ads together. And it was real fun to hear how he wrote, see what he wrote, and talking about it. In fact, when I ran seminars in the Los Angeles area, I had him come and address my classes, and the class just loved him, and it was just great having him around. Did he help you put together the space ads that you ran in Entrepreneur Magazine? No, I did that myself. I ran my own house agency. Once you get going, you can run your own advertising agency and take off 15%. Did he put together ads that you tested either in news? We worked on a few ads together, but it wasn't ongoing. But I did have this ongoing lecture to my classes that I used to run in the Los Angeles area for many, many years. He was happy to come and contribute. People were inspired by him. Do you remember at that time, did he have a set of tapes on direct marketing at that time that he was selling at the lectures, or was he just speaking for free? He was just speaking for free and enjoyed it. Did you have any other speakers during those lectures? Well, I lectured with Joe Cabo near San Diego. We did a lecture at one of the colleges. I did a lecture with Joe Cabo, and that was fun, and there were a couple hundred people there or more. It was just a great time, and people, everybody knew his dad because dad ran the lazy man's way to riches. So we did that seminar. But the people in the mail order business years ago used to get together every so often in an informal way to hear about successes and also ads that did not work. So you can learn every ad that I wrote or Joe Cabo wrote or anybody else wrote, every ad is not a winner. If it isn't a winner, you try to find out from people around you, can you tell me what could be improved in this ad? And then you don't have to be bashful about it. And neither did every book that I published make it. We sold out, but every book is not a winner. You also did a lot of teaching and lectures through some of the community colleges. Did you have to promote that, or did the community colleges sponsor those lectures with their students? The community colleges sponsored those in their catalogs. 
and I was in just about every single community college in the Los Angeles area, and I ran those seminars for years. So could anyone who has an expertise or claims himself as an expert get in with the community colleges in their area and start getting exposure that way? Absolutely, and you can sell your books there or whatever you're doing. Usually it's a book that they have, but they will interview you before they write you up in their catalog. They'll ask you to come in, and they are very interested in having you. So I was in every place. If I was to call a community college and look into that, who would I ask for? Who handles all that? You just say, who handles the new speakers, lecturers, so you could get in, and then it's fine, and it's great publicity for you. How many people could they get there? Well, Donald Trump has spoken for them, and all the big names. So if you bring in enough people, they'll hire the Los Angeles Convention Center for you. In fact, that's where I gave one of my first lectures for Entrepreneur Magazine. That gave me the idea for a book. See, someone in the office called me and wanted to know if I would lecture on mail order at the Los Angeles Convention Center. They were holding a convention for the magazine. So I went and did and had a couple hundred people show up for the hour lecture. When I was done, some of the people asked me if I had a book. And I said, no, I don't have a book. But see, going there gave me the idea because of the question that people had and saying, well, they asked me for a book, so that motivated me to write a book. And so right after that, I sat down and wrote the mail order book. And once you wrote that book, did that give you instant credibility? Did that help your business once you became a published author on your topic of mail order? Well, although I was in the mail order business for a long time, I wasn't really doing mail order consulting because I was busy with my own business. So when I wrote the book, I had to give myself a title. I just couldn't say, this is Melvin Powers, book publisher. So I put down, How to Get a Rich in Mail Order by Melvin Powers, Mail Order Consultant. And do you know what happened after that? What happened? <laughs> I got a lot of phone calls. <laughs> For consulting. In fact, I got so busy that I couldn't handle all the people that wanted to see me. So I formed an advertising agency outside of my own book publishing business. I see. Now, these lectures at the community colleges, you didn't charge them for those, did you? How that works is that you split the money. The course wasn't expensive. It was usually about $30, $25, $50 maximum. And we'd get 100 students signed up. And so we divided the money between the college and the speaker. And then I could sell my books. So it would mean thousands of dollars sometimes just to go and speak for a morning or speak all day. So that was very profitable, and the college was happy. Would you have to split the gross sales of the book sales? No. Okay, so you got to keep all of that. Yeah, I got to keep that, or the speakers get to keep that. But it's not that I was running or anybody runs a course just to sell a book. You have to be giving out some good, legitimate information, how to do this or how to do that or something else. So all of these community college lectures, people paid for these. Not many of them were offered free. None of them for free. But what is interesting, I offered to do some free seminars in the inner city in Los Angeles because I was interested and still am in doing something with people there who feel life is over and they can't make it in life. I said, I'll run the seminars free of charge put it in the catalog, and I'll come and speak, and let's see what we can do if we can't get some stories of people who have made it, and no one signed up for the course. 
Well, what lesson do you learn there? Well, they said that they couldn't do it. But we said we're offering a free course in mail order to achieve some goals in life. And how to get into the mail order business and make money. We didn't get any students enrolled. Here's a question from Rosemary Phillips. Mr. Powers, I manufacture a niche product that I have always believed would make the perfect infomercial. How can I get my product reviewed to determine whether television marketing would be the right way for me to sell my products? Well, try to submit your product to the shows that are on TV right now. In other words, when you see the ads on TV, take down the name and address, tell them that you have a product that you want to sell on TV, tell them what it's all about, give them your phone number and see if you get somebody calling you back. So these people are looking for good products. Oh, that's the job all the time. There's also a convention coming up, and they have conventions twice a year in Florida and Las Vegas, and everyone on TV is looking for product. In fact, when I was on TV and in the product business, I was traveling to trade shows around the country because I was looking for a product to sell, and everyone's door is always open. Did you ever do a TV product that you did not have total control? It was your product, but you had to do like a partnership with the promoter of the product on the television end? No, you get a percentage. You get 5%, 10% of the selling price, and that's what you have, and you turn over the rights for the person to do the show that he wants to do, so you can't get involved in that, and no one is going to do that. But they'll give you a fair share of what you as the inventor or your idea and you sign a contract with them. But it's difficult to do. But if you have something unique, there's always something on TV, and some things are played over and over and over again. How to clean your carpet, or how to use a vacuum cleaner, or how to care for your skin. They want products that you're going to be buying every single month, or vitamins or health products. So just look to see what's on TV, take the name and address, I'll call the 800 number that they always have and try to get the name and address of the company selling the product, but there's always the name and address on the screen. You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Why is a consumable product a better product to sell on TV compared to a product that you sell one time? Because it's very expensive going on TV and buying of time is very expensive. Putting the show together is expensive. So whether it's TV or an hour or a half hour, it's a very expensive proposition. They want something that people are going to buy over and over again, such as vitamin products and health products and skin products. So that's the reason for it, because you make the front sale. Maybe you wouldn't make any money on the first sale, but afterwards there's always the back end, and that's where people make the money. But if you think you have something that's great, Go for it. Or if you can't get any results doing that, call up some of the local TV stations and see if somebody will work with you on a two-minute spot. In other words, you have to work at it. Did you ever sell anything using two-minute spots? I've sold a product called Slick 50. That's a famous product. Were you one of the first guys in on that? Well, no. I was the first one to ever run a TV show on it, and it was a half-hour show with people saying this is the greatest thing that ever was invented. 
and I thought I was going to sell one bottle of the Slick 50 and sold for 39.95 plus the shipping of 3.95. But when I found out that most people were buying two bottles of it because there were two cats in the family. <laughs> and was this through your 30-minute show or a two-minute show? This is through a 30-minute infomercial. Now that infomercial cost $100,000 to put out. It doesn't get made for nothing. And I also sold products to take out scratches out of cars and also to brighten up your car, polish. But my big deal on TV was my Mail Order Millionaire course that I sold and still sell. started out as a one-hour infomercial, and that went extremely well. I sold my book and cassette tapes, and that went extremely well. And we started it out at $300, and we were on all the time when we dropped the price of 200 used up the $200 price, we finally went to $100 price. So we were on that for a long time, and we still sell it, but we're not on an infomercial with it. Did you ever cut it down to 30 minutes, or did it always run an hour? Well, no. We first started out as an hour because the sales dropped after a while. They said, well, how can you pick up the sale? Well, now for the first time, we were dropping the price of $200. Okay, so that got people into it, and after you dropped the price of $200, it went down to $100. And that dried up, and I went off the air. After they bought the course, were you back in selling anything to the buyers? Oh, well, they were selling my book, making money with classified ads. We sold a book on advertising, how to write good advertisements, and we sold them a motivational book. So, yes, there was back end on it as well. Were you running that nationally or just in a couple? Nationally, all over the country. Wow. How many of those courses did you sell through those series of infomercials on the mail order? I don't know the exact amount, but it was a great many. So was that your greatest success on television? Yes, correct. The Slick 50 infomercial, was that a 30-minute or an hour? A 30-minute show. Do you know how many bottles of that stuff you sold? I don't know the exact amount. What do you like better, the TV stuff or your mail order stuff? Well, they were both interesting. You get into a new challenge, and it's fun and exciting. And one time, I came to the office one day a week because I got into the music business. I became a songwriter with Tommy Boyce. And we had some hit songs and some songs that on the charts. One was Who Wants a Slightly Used Woman with Connie Cato. It was done on Capitol Records. I got on the charts with the song Mr. Songwriter. And, and that got on the charts as well with Sunday Shop. And then I also produced an album of music and sold it to MGM Records. Let's say you wrote a hit song, like Who Wants a Slightly Used Woman? Right. You partnered with Tommy. And what were some of the songs he was famous for? Well, he was famous for lots of songs, but two of his most famous ones was Take the Last Train to Clarksville and Come a Little Bit Closer, You My Kind of Guy. You remember that song? Yeah. And he did a whole... What was the prize if you were able to write a hit song? What happens when you write it and it becomes a hit? How do you make money from that? The royalties. What are the standard royalties on a song like that? To make be the 1% or 2% on it. If you have the publishing and the authorship, it was a time 2%. Oh, I see. But it all adds up. But I was in it not for the money. I was in it because I wanted a new challenge. So it was fun and exciting. In fact, when I thought of the song title... Who Wants a Slightly Used Woman? I knew that I had a hit, and I hadn't written one word. Do you remember when that idea came to you? Yes, I was visiting with a friend, and a real friend of hers came in and said to this woman that I was visiting, today my divorce became final. And she was telling us the story of what happened. She had a little girl, and her life was going to be different now. And 
first story that I wrote, and I knew that the song was going to be Who Wants a Slightly Used Woman. I knew that that was going to get women all upset and so forth, and I figured that would be good. In fact, if I can just tell you just the first few lines. Sing it for us. Today my divorce became final. Seven years of my life has slipped away. And would you believe it happened on our little girl's birthday? How can I tell her her daddy won't be coming home to stay? That was the first couple lines, and I had that in my mind when I was listening to the story. I knew that it was a hit. Yeah, that's emotional. I mean, that'll get anyone to choke up. Yeah. So emotion sells, doesn't it, in a good song or in a good sales letter? Correct, and I've been in it for six months. But I was in it for the sure pleasure and enjoyment of a new challenge. And you got that idea based on something that was actually true. Oh, yes, it was a true story. Here's a question from a guy out of Atlanta. His name's Matt Lowry. I interviewed him on my site. And when he was 19, he started a cleaning business. He was cleaning offices out of one car. And he built up a multi-million dollar cleaning business. He's still in it. And he's a trainer for the cleaning business. And he asked, Mr. Powers, do you believe in offline classified advertising with a powerful headline and call to action with a website address could work in a traditional two-step marketing plan? Absolutely, positively. I would absolutely try it and go for it. And what you want to do is run it and see how many inquiries you get and improve it all the time. Yes, that's the way you do it. So run one in jazz and magazines. And direct them to the website. Right. No phone number or would you add a phone number? Well, I'd do both. You would. Have you ever tested something like that where you give someone a choice to either call or to go to a website and looked at any results? I had them go to our website. No phone number? No phone number. And it saves you time from answering the phone. Right. Well, I mean, there's a service that does that, but the worst sales were in the phone calls. When they had to send in a postal card, they had to send in the name and address. That was a better lead. Because it shows their level of interest. Right. Picking up a phone is easy. Correct. Going to your computer and typing in a website is a little more difficult. But it works. Everything works, and if it doesn't work, you got to work at it. Here's a question from Paul Stevens. I also interviewed him on my site. He is a learning expert. He teaches people how to improve their study skills. And I'll tell you, Mr. Powers, this is very interesting. Out of all my recordings, I look at the statistics of which recordings are downloaded and listened to most. In this recording that I did with him, it's not necessarily the recording, but the subject, the market, is one of my number one most listened to recordings. And it's on how to improve your study skills. Ah, that's interesting. I'll have that book out next week. There you go. I'll have them contact you. But the demand is absolutely there. Maybe it's because there's so many college kids online and they're proficient with the computer and I don't know, but the numbers don't lie. But his question is, Mr. Powers, everybody who goes into business for themselves develops a list of their favorite free and paid resources. Can you give us an inside look at a resource or two that you would use to get a new venture off the ground? The resources that you wouldn't give up without a fight? Well, I get what is known as DM News. It's a magazine that comes out every month. It's all about direct marketing, so people should get that. They can find out the address and the phone number, and it's free, called DM News. The other thing I get once a month, and this is free, is called the Internet Retailer. What is that? It's a magazine about what's happening on the Internet business, and I read that every single month. Okay, what else? For the book business, I get Publishers Weekly, and I read that every single week. And I read what is the number one book, what's the number two book, what's going, what isn't going. 
keep up with the book publishing business by that, and I keep up with the Internet business by getting a hold of Internet retailer. That's just a great way of finding out what's going on in the business. The action nowadays is on the Internet. That's where the main action is, at least for what I'm doing, at least for what I hear from most people. So I would get and purchase all the books I could get on Internet marketing. I purchase almost every new book that comes out on Internet marketing because I want to get some idea of what's happening. What did this person have that I should be using? So those are the things that I use and also listen. In fact, even before we got on the air, I was telling Michael that his source of what he's offering is, this is not a paid commercial, <laughs> that his source of material is absolutely great and I'm going to go through it and listen to all of those tapes because it's, Getting information that reminds you what you should be doing, and they have some great, great names there. They have all the leaders in the field, and you should be listening to those tapes and buying whatever you can. Thank you, Mr. Powers. I appreciate that. Here's another question from Paul Stevens. Mr. Powers, you've seen the self-help boom, the start of your own business boom, then the Internet entrepreneur boom. Now hard times are back. Are you expecting to see a boom in the info products on fighting the recession, high prices, and high energy costs? Or do you think people will not respond to economic scares with preparation? Paul Stevens. Well, I think all of those things are going to be good, but I wouldn't do a book on the stock market right now, how to make money on the stock market, because it's up and down. Today it was down 200 points. The last couple of days it was up almost 500 points in a couple of days, so that's scary. And you can't do a book nowadays, how to make money in the real estate business, because no one's going to say yes, because real estate prices are going down, but it will finally come up again. But it's the wrong time for that. I have been, as you just said and the gentleman asked, I've been in the self-help inspirational market my whole life, and I read all of my books virtually. I've read, I wouldn't say all of them, but I read most of the bestsellers on the Internet in the self-help inspirational market because that's feeding me, and I get the cassette tapes, and I pass everything along so other people can enjoy it and get the benefit from it. I love the self-help inspirational market because that's what I've been doing my whole life and it's been working just fine, and it works for me. Here's a question from Alan Kirk of Alan Kirk & Associates Party Limited. Mr. Powers, what advice would you give to parents wanting to teach their children to be financially responsible and accountable for their future? Well, I wouldn't make the money that easy. I wouldn't just hand them money, make them know that people have to work for the money and have them get jobs when they can to get the feeling of earning a dollar. And if they do, they'll be okay. And you instill the joy and benefit of working and not just having a lot of money and buying 20 automobiles. That's not my enjoyment. I have other things to do with my money. I like to help people, but it's a question of seeing your father or your mother achieve a success in life and spreading the joy and wisdom of what you have learned. So I don't have any particular market for it, but my children earned money growing up, and they enjoyed it and told them to save it. Whatever you saved, I will put in like amount in your bank, so that worked out fine, and they're both very good workers. For more exclusive interviews on business, marketing, advertising, and copywriting, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. This is from West Connor of medicinecoach.com. 
And he says, Mr. Powers, I've been contemplating my publishing options for my book. With self-publishing, I can make more money from each book sold, but will have distribution issues in bookstores. With traditional publishing, the payout is less, but the distribution is better. Can you explain the advantages and disadvantages of each? It depends what you want to do. What is the purpose of writing that book? I'd like to hear what is the back end. See, publishing a book is just the first step in a plan as to what you want to do with it. In other words, do you want to do consultations? Do you want to put out a newsletter? If it was an investment book, you would naturally have a newsletter that you would sell. Do you want to put out cassette tapes, CDs, videotapes? Do you want to teach courses? In other words, I would tell people to take control of, of your book. I'm not saying if you got an offer from a major publisher, take it. But usually they don't follow through on what they say that they are going to do because of the person who's going to handle publicity changes that PR may not go through. I like the idea of taking control of your own life. And when you self-publish a book, what you should do first before you even write the book is to write a four-page sales letter trying to get yourself excited what this book is going to do for the reader. In fact, before I wrote my book on how to get rich in mail order, I wrote a four-page sales letter that I was going to do some direct mail on, seeing what the response was of the ad that I wrote. And when the ad was successful, then I knew I could go on from there. What I did, I forgot to tell you, I bought 3,000 copies of someone else's book and only put the name of the book in the coupon. And when that went the ad went well with direct mail and space ads, I knew that I had a winner. Now that I wrote the winning ad, all I had to do was to write the book. And that's what I did. I ran the same ad again, and it worked. So you bought 3,000 copies of a book called How to Get Rich in Mail Order? No, I wrote a book with some other title, but I told the people in the ad how to get rich in mail order. But it was mail order made easy. But I had the winning ad. Now, if you don't want to write a book, you can write a 32-page report or manual on the same book and write the same ad and see if you can sell it using direct mail or now going on the internet. In fact, what would be wrong with making an e-book out of your book? You say the whole book was written. Do an e-book on it and advertise it on the internet and allow people to download the first chapter. Anything wrong with that? And get some response to the first three chapters. Get some response or even better, let them read the whole book at the end of it and ask, did you enjoy reading this book? What were the strong points? What were the weak points? What would you suggest that I do in the next edition of this? I would appreciate your comments very much. And that will give you a great deal of information. So you could test the concept very easily. And what you're doing in all these ads is, like Elmer Wheeler said, you're selling the sizzle, not the steak. And that's what book publishers used to do. They're saying, we're coming out with a beautiful four-color book on the animals in Africa. And they would run some test copy, and based upon the response, they would either go with it or not go with it. So what I'm saying, if the book isn't written, I think that the best way that I would do it nowadays is make a free e-book out of it. You don't have to keep it on forever. Say you sold a couple hundred books, that would be wonderful, and get the feedback how you can improve the book. Here's a question from Paul Guyon. Mr. Powers, how do I identify a list of hungry buyers in a niche that I can reach easily and inexpensively? I don't know how inexpensively, but there's a library called Standard Rate and Data Mailing List, and they will give you the list of all the lists that are available, and every library has it. There's 
say such and such a niche has 10,000 or 100,000 names, and it's 90 to $100 per thousand. So you rent 3,000 and send them a mailing of 1,000 and see what happens. And you could test various prices. You can test various headlines and see if you get one order or 100 orders or no orders. If it's on, say, fishing or whatever it happens to be, or knitting, you go to the magazine or the bowling and say, you'd like to rent their list at the niche market and rent out 3,000 names of their names and do a mailing to them. So that's a perfect niche market. He also wants to know, is there a way that you can determine from the SRDS whether these people on this list have purchased things before? Oh, they've all purchased things before, and they'll tell you exactly what they purchased and how many orders were sold for a certain item. It gives you a lot of information, and it's all in there. Now, when you would rent your mailing list, when you were doing direct mail, would you ask from the list broker or the list owner who else has mailed to that list and how frequent? Yes, you can ask that, and that will give you some great information. If you can get that information, that will give you a lot of good information. But if I was going to do a mailing of 100,000 names, which I did frequently, I would rent 10 different names and key them differently. I may not even get any orders from half of them. The You'd rent 10 different lists, 1,000 per list? Is that what you mean? Well, if you're going to rent 100,000 names, you get 10 different lists and get 10,000 from each list. Right. And I did a mailing to those people and saw which ones pulled and which ones didn't pull. I've heard rumors that there are list brokers and mailing list owners who are less than honest. Are there any techniques when you rented names that would lessen your chance of mailing to, like, names out of the telephone book or mailing to bad lists? Go with a big company. The SRDS is just a compilation of different lists. So rent a list from a reputable company. Correct, and you can also do stuffings by a list where you can put a circular in with outgoing orders. When you did your mail order, did you do it in-house or did you farm it all out? We didn't do the mailings out of our own offices. We had a mailing house. The other thing you can do is you can take a space ad, you can take a full-page ad in the magazine. I ran for 10 years in a bowling magazine, and I ran a book called The Secret of Bowling Strikes. Now, magazines and newspapers have what is known as remaindered space and remaindered pages. And when they're not filling up that page, they will sell you the space for a half price or 25% of the price. So you could go there with your ad and find out how it's working. If it's good, you'll pay for this ad, but you'll know how the ad is working, say for a bowling, a golf book, or a health book, or anything else. I've got a bunch of questions from a gentleman named David Cracker from inventconnect.com out of Australia. And his first one is, Mr. Powers, how long has it taken you to be successful and what measures did you use to show that your efforts were working? Well, it didn't take me too long and it's a question of what you want. I had several goals. One was to make $100,000 sometime. That my take would be 100000 the next thing I wanted to do a million dollars in business and achieve those goals. Same thing as the goals were for the music. I wanted to get on the charts, and my goal was I wasn't going to stop until I got some songs on the charts. When I achieved those goals, I achieved it, got invited to Nashville to receive a plaque for these songs. I also wanted to produce an album of music and sell it, and I did. So those were goals that I had. It's the goal and not the money. I'm not saying it didn't start that way because I did have a goal to begin with and I had some future monetary goals, but the goals that I loved the best was getting on the charts 
and Barnes & Noble, I one time had three bestsellers on that list. I had a book that I published called The Magic of Thinking Big by Dr. David Schwartz. I had another book on there, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And the other book was Psychosybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. So I had three books on the bestseller list. And then the goal was to get on the national bestseller list. When Dr. Maltz's book, Psychosybernetics, got on the New York Times bestseller list, that was a great goal and I was very happy. And that meant more to me than the monetary reward. So those are the type of goals that I love. Take me back to the day and the time when you heard the news that Psycho-Cybernetics got on the bestsellers list, the national one. Do you remember that? Well, I remember seeing it on the bestseller list, and I must have got a phone call. I'm not sure how I heard it, but I was reading the papers every day. We were selling a ton of books, so I had the idea we are going to be on it pretty soon. And when it got on, I guess it was on a Sunday, I felt great, and the phone was ringing. It was a great feeling. I'll tell you a wonderful feeling that I had talking about feelings and what you can do. What are the chances of getting a four-page spread and the Reader's Digest about a charity that you're involved in? A four-page spread and the Reader's Digest. Tell me that story. The chances of getting it in are next to zero. I was very involved with what was known as Johnny Carpenter and his Miracle Ranch, and it is called the Johnny Carpenter Heaven on Earth Ranch for Handicapped Children. And I sent a story into the Reader's Digest, and we got a four-page write-up about Johnny Carpenter's ranch, and that produced a lot of money. And that was a wonderful feeling. And we got some other PR because I knew that the way to raise money in tax donations was through getting some PR. So we did that, and it was wonderful. We sent out mailings on that, and that was a wonderful feeling. So did you write to the editor of the Reader's Digest? Yes, I sent them a story about Johnny Coppin, sent them photographs, other articles that we had received. What are some of the things you did that increased your chances for getting that four-page spread? So you've got listeners out there who maybe have causes that they're supporting or products or services. Well, I told them the story of Johnny Coppin sent photographs that this was for real and no one has taken any money off the top. There was no money taken off for anything, and that was a great feeling. I did get a write-up in the Los Angeles Times. I called, and it was this easy. I called the Los Angeles Times. I said, this is Melvin Powers. I'm the publisher of Russia Book Company, and my hobby is teaching mail-order seminars. And I wrote a book called How to Get Rich in Mail-Order, and I'm in just about every single community college in the Los Angeles area, and I've been doing this for years, and I thought it may make an interesting article. And they send a reporter and photographer out to my office, and they ran my story in the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times, and all my classes got a waiting list. I made one phone call, and that was it. You see, you just took action and you asked, and it was that simple. Yes. It's as simple as you're calling me and saying, would I do this interview? The answer was yes. I didn't have to think about it. When you got the Psycho-Cybernetics on the national bestseller list, what did that do for sales of that book once it hit the national bestseller? It jumped more. It doubled, in fact. And what I did, which is interesting for the listeners, when I republished the book, 
because I was publishing it 5,000 at a time, 10,000 at a time. When the time came to run the next edition, I wrote maybe a 10-page quote about selling 1 million copies of the book and how I felt that this was getting around, that psychocybernetics was getting around. Yeah, how did you handle your budget for your company? Were you detailed about that? Yes, I'm detailed about it, but as we were growing and making money, it all took care of itself. I'd get the best prices I could for my printing. I've had the same printer for a lifetime. Yeah, we talked about that in another interview. You even gave his name and number. So any of the listeners, on the first interview I did with Melvin, we've got the name and the phone number of Melvin's printer. Yeah. How did you stay focused, he wants to know, and do you have any kind of management strategy for your business as it was growing? Not really. I just did it week by week, year by year, and we grew and grew. That was it. Is there anything that simply did not work that you felt was a great idea? Can you give us a couple examples, I guess, of some of your failures that you just were so excited about and thought would work but didn't work out? (laughs) Well, we sold on every book we had. I did a book on exuberance by Dr. Paul Kurtz. It's called Exuberance. It's still in print, but I don't publish it anymore. He does. And I was exuberant about the book because the book was yours truly. I thought I was reading my own autobiography, (laughs) (laughs) what I like to do. So I was exuberant about the book, spent a lot of money on PR, sold out a couple of editions, but that was the end of it. Yeah. When you say you spent a lot of money on PR, do you use PR services to help promote your books and products? Yes, I use a fellow named Irwin Zucker, Z-U-C-K-I-E. And what was the first name? Irwin. And he's in Hollywood, and I see him all the time. And he's been my PR man for many, many years. Call up for information, and you get him. So you've had a PR guy for years helping you promote. Right. What are some of the great things he did for you, some of the great accomplishments? Well, he does the job getting me on TV, getting me on radio, getting me articles in newspapers, magazines. Incidentally, I just looked up his phone number if you want it. Sure, go ahead. It's 323 461-3921. He's been at it for a lifetime, and he can do a good job for you. I'm not positive. I guess different PR agencies charge different things, but generally they charge you per month, or is it a... They like to have a three-month contract with him, but you can call up the PR people and see who you gel with, who you get along with. This is the end of Part 2. Please continue to Part 3. You're listening to an interview on Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.